Good morning to each one of you here in the uh, auditorium, sanctuary, those out in the fellowship hall, and uh, those who are joining us online. We're so glad you've, uh, you're participating with us today in worshiping our great God and Savior. I want to give a very special welcome and uh, really a shout out to a group joining us online this morning, the United States Army Veterans. A Battery, 2nd Battalion, 35th Regiment, Field Artillery, 23rd Artillery Group, who are having a weekend reunion out in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And our own Rick and Marty Robinson are there as well. If you count down five from the right, you'll see Rick's picture up there uh, with his, his brothers. So we want to thank you for joining us so much from Oklahoma. It was April 18th, 1970, three o'clock in the morning, 51 years ago exactly today, that 300 enemy soldiers attacked and nearly overran the camp. It was these brave and courageous men of A Battery who fought for their lives and fought for each other. The battle was grueling. It went nonstop for two and a half hours. And today they are remembering those who were lost in the battle, those who came home severely wounded. And we here at Webster, at Osterville Baptist Church on Cape Cod, we honor you. I especially wanted to honor you men and your spouses this morning by wearing my uh, Viet Nam era veteran lapel pin, and that's worn in honor of you brave men and your spouses. Thank you for your service. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for all of our veterans and especially ask for peace and healing for those who served in the 23rd Artillery Group. We realize that the freedom we have to even worship today is directly linked to those in the past who have made great sacrifices and some the ultimate sacrifice. We pray you would give this band of brothers your peace as they somberly remember and reflect on their time together, especially 51 years ago today. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray, amen. So this morning, we want to continue our series of studies we began last week. John 21, you can see the hook. Follow me, I'll make you to become fishers of men. The crook represents the shepherd's uh, shepherding ministry. And God calls us to that ministry of discipleship, making disciples teaching them to observe all things. Last week, we looked at the first 14 verses, and there's a very simple but needed truth that we need to be reminded of constantly. The dependence of a disciple must be cast upon Christ. But this morning, we come to the second principle, and it's the devotion of a disciple must be centered on Christ. Let me ask you a question as we begin to look into this passage of Scripture. 
You might have to think a long time ago. It might be recent. Have you ever committed a sin so very grievous, even so shocking, that if it got out, people would start talking about it and about you? And that would never change in your whole lifetime. That sin so grievous would still be before you. You die. You know Christ, you go to heaven, but now for hundreds of years, even a couple thousand, people are still talking about it, like we're doing even this morning. A failure so great that probably everyone tuning in, whether you're a veteran believer or whether you're just a seeker or a new believer, you probably know about it. When we have failed, especially when we have failed those we love the most, Remember that old song, you always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. When we do that, uh, we go through a swirl of emotions. There can be anger, there can be ashamed. How could I have done that? How could I have done that to this person? And we're just so doggone ashamed It almost would give anything that we could erase it from our memory. We get fearful. We can even despair. And of course, by now you know that I'm talking about Simon Peter and his threefold denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm so glad the Holy Spirit led John to write this 21st chapter. Without this chapter, there'd be a lot of things we just wouldn't know about. We just would have to surmise. We wouldn't know. For instance, when Jesus was with his disciples on earth, we see him loving, caring for them, forgiving them, leading them, shepherding them. But now that he's been crucified and resurrected and soon will be ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father in the exalted position, what is Jesus' ministry to his disciples today? Has it changed? Or is he still caring and loving and providing for us? And John 21, 1 to 14 answered that question for us. Indeed, he is. The fact that he's in heaven makes no difference. Nothing's changed. In fact, he's given us his Holy Spirit in order for that, those ministries to continue uh, to carry on. But in the chapter today, in, in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 21, we were left with the question, what happens to Simon Peter? Last time I saw him, he was denying Christ and cursing and swearing. Is there a future for him? Can he, has he forfeited his right to spiritual ministry? Has he even forfeited his right to spiritual leadership? Or can God use someone who has committed such a public, shameful and grievous sin. And without John 21, we simply wouldn't know the answer to that question. So the emphasis is on our Lord's grace, his mercy, his love, and his forgiveness and restoration. But you know, sometimes the larger issue I have found in talking to people for over 50 years in ministry is how they will say often to me, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. How can I forgive myself? Now, it's my opinion 
though forgiven, that Peter never forgot that awful, awful time. True traditions, and we've got to underline traditions. We don't know if they're true, so take it with a grain of salt. One tradition said this, that, that every time he heard a rooster crow in Israel, and when you go to Israel, you hear a lot of them, that he would begin weeping. That's how awful, how, how ashamed he was at what he did. It, though forgiven by God, he could not shake it. The other tradition says that he would wake up in the night and at the very hour that he would have betrayed the Lord, he would spend that hour in prayer. So we're looking at Christ's design for discipleship and the center of our text is a hope-filled truth undergirded in love and grace. I don't know what is brought to your mind even as I am speaking. Maybe you're traveling back, maybe something even more recent. But one thing we know, failure, when we've all suffered them, failure is an event, it's not a destiny. As Peter's story abundantly proves, it's not our initial failure that ruins us, but what happens next that matters. It's kind of like in the political or public realm. It's not the sin they committed. It's when they try to cover up. One thing I've observed is most people are forgiving people. And when people go and say, you know, I blew it, I was a failure, I did it, I'm wrong, would you forgive me? People are quick, I believe, to forgive. But like Peter, I've got to own up to my sin. I can't say it was because of him or because of her or if I hadn't been in that situation. No, I did what I did because I chose to do it and I wanted to do it. Just as simple as that. Trust me, I've got those I wish I could forget. Just like all of us. So the Lord is forgiving to us. And we've got to own up to it and take responsibility and then deal with it. That's my responsibility. But Jesus' responsibility is to do the full work of restoration. And that's the wonderful thing we're going to see in our passage. So how does Jesus restore a fallen disciple? How does Jesus restore Peter? How does he restore you and me? I come to four stages, and the first one is on the screen about uh, before you, and it's actually going to lead us into John 21. It's not in John 21, but a few things that preceded it that are crucial for us to know, I think. And it deals with the private conversation about the shameful denials. First thing I want you to note is Jesus sent a personal message to Peter. Now this is before the public confrontation we're gonna see in John 21. Jesus sent a personal message to Peter. We know the story how a short time before John 21, Peter was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers came and they arrested him and they were going to take him to the Praetorium. Some of you remember seeing that in Jerusalem or even on the scale. Just imagine a big, massive building and an open courtyard like here and then kind of a second floor with a walking uh, balcony up there that kind of goes around. And, um, and that's where Jesus is going to be taken because Annas is there. Uh, Caiaphas is there. The Sanhedrin office is there. Pilate and uh, 
Uh, Herod, when he came to Jerusalem, and uh, offices were there as well. So Luke twenty-two fifty-four says, Then they seized him, that is the Lord Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's office, house. And Peter, notice this, was following at a distance. He didn't completely depart. But he did not want to be identified with him because whatever happened to him that probably wasn't going to be good would happen to Peter. So he's kind of there, but he's at a distance. Jesus has taken up to meet first with Annas, and he's going to pass him off to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas will pass him off to the entire Sanhedrin. And meanwhile, Peter's down in the courtyard. And there it says that he is by a charcoal fire where three times he swore and he cursed. Did you ever swear and curse God or use his name in vain? Did you ever just lose it and use some language just saying, how in the world did that come out of my mouth? You're so ashamed. He cursed and he swore that he didn't know Jesus. I'm going to read the text for you here, Luke 22, 61, 62, and it says it all. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times, and he went out, and he wept bitterly. So here's Peter, he's warming his hands by the fire, and a one person there, and the little girl was also there. She has to, and three times he's asked, I think I saw you with him. You sound just like him. You're one of them, aren't you? And I can imagine each expression, each answer that Peter has is rises with hostility and anger. No, I don't know him. I swear I don't know him. I've never been with him. And as he said that very, as he's in the midst of saying, I don't know him, to these around the charcoal fire, he looks up and Jesus is being led from the one arrest people to the next group. And Jesus looks down at Peter and as he's saying with curse and oaths, I don't know him, his eyes catch Peter, just like my eyes are catching some of you right now. I'm looking right at you. I call it the look that broke Peter's heart. He spoke a personal message to Peter, and he didn't say a word. I've seen that look. Not literally like Peter, but I've seen it. How could you, Harry? How could you? I know it's a personal, I know it's a penetrating, I know it's a powerful, and I know it's a passionate look. But I'll tell you what, I don't think it was a look of, like we sometimes give to people or children, I told, a look that I told you so. Peter did tell him. Jesus did tell Peter, you're going to do it. Peter said, no, I'm not going to do it. Others may, I won't do it. I don't think it was a look of, I told you. I think it was a look of passion and pity. Because just as, as Peter had broken Jesus' heart, now that look of Jesus broke Simon Peter's heart. 
The second personal message to Peter is recorded in Mark 16:7. when we go to the Easter, first Easter morning. When the woman arrived at the tomb early on Sunday morning, an angel told them, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. Now, if you're a serious Bible student and you don't just read past it and read on, you can't help but say, why did they say, go tell the disciples and Peter? That would be like me saying, uh, if, if I said, now go tell uh, the pastors and the elders at OBC. Oh, and, and Pastor Rob, tell them. You say, well, why do you say Pastor Rob? He is a pastor and elder. He's included in that group of pastors and elders. Peter was not only a disciple, he was the leader of the disciples. So when they say, go tell the disciples, why does he single out Peter? And the only thing I can say is because I think Jesus probably knew that at that time, Jesus, a Peter, was not gathering with the disciples. Remember, it was only 15 to 18 hours earlier. It's like we'd say last night. Last evening, that's how long ago it was. When they're in that upper room and Jesus talks about denying him and Peter boastfully, arrogant, looks at John and Bartholomew and Thomas and and James and Andrew and says, Lord, you can't count on them. But I'll never do that. Now he's going to go down and sit with the disciples when everybody knows, Peter himself turned into butter under the pressure. It's interesting when we fail and we fail greatly, we want to isolate ourselves, don't we? We don't want to be with the Lord and we don't want to be with believers. We just kind of retreat into a self-pity party. And then we begin asking the question, who am I? Am I a disciple or am I a traitor? Am I fish or am I fowl? Am I Israelite or am I a Philistine? Who am I? And I lose my identity. Notice something else with me. Not only that Jesus sent a personal message to Peter through his look and through the message, tell Peter, but now he has a personal meeting with Peter before the public confrontation in John 21. So where did Peter go after he denied Christ? The answer is we don't really know. But we can surmise that he did what I just said a minute ago, probably retreated someone for it to himself. Sin separates from God, but sin separates us from God's people. And I think what happened to Peter that weekend, wherever he was, you can only imagine the anguish, the shamefulness in his mind and heart. And he must have felt all alone in the world. And the last thing we are told is that Jesus looked at him and Peter wept bitterly. So we're not told where he was the afternoon of the crucifixion. Don't know where he was on the Saturday. But Jesus did. So he made a special appearance to Peter sometime on Easter morning. Twice the New Testament mentions this personal meeting taking place. Luke 24, 34 says, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul's now writing uh, about 25 years later or so, and he writes the letter to the church at Corinth, and in that great resurrection chapter, chapter 15, it says in verses 4 and 5 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, same one. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, like he did on that first Easter night. I'd really love to know what happened, what words were spoken. Where did it take place? I don't know. What did Jesus say to Peter privately? I don't know. What did Peter say to Jesus privately? We don't know. We don't know what was said because it's none of your business or mine. Just like when you sin a grievous sin and then you get on your knees and you pour your heart out to the great high priest, our advocate, the one who bore our sins, and you have a little private conversation, kind of go back and forth. You're just getting things made right. May I give you just a word of advice? You don't share that with anybody. That's between you. Some conversations are so intimate, they only belong to you and with him. But now in John 21, we move from the private conversation to the public confrontation. We have what we call the public confrontation of a sinning disciple. And I, I mentioned three things here that I think must have tore Peter up. He's still in the process. I think he's been personally forgiven and restored in that personal meeting. But now it lingers on. We're forgiven, but it's the, the memory is so fresh. Now we're coming before the other disciples, and there's seven of them. And the setting is the scene in which Jesus confronts Peter with his sinful disobedience must have stirred his memory and touched his heart. Where did Peter deny the Lord? Well, John 18, 18 says it was before a charcoal fire. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them was standing and warming himself. The particular Greek word, and there are a lot of different words used for it, but the particular Greek word here is used only twice in the entire Bible. Once it's used what I just read, John 18, 18, out there in the courtyard. And the other time is right here in John chapter 21, verse 9, when, remember, Peter and them came to shore. They'd been fishing all night. And what it says in verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw, there it is, a charcoal fire. Only two times. And I'm just wondering, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But I think that was particular chosen just to remind Peter of that other familiar setting where Jesus has this conversation now with Peter. The second one is the salutation. Did you notice in verse 15 when Jesus addresses Simon Peter? He says, Simon, now some of you have a translation that says son of John. Others of you may have a new King James or older King James uh, original, and it says son of Jonah. It's all the same person. It's just a different language. That's all. But he addresses him, and, he's, and he says, Simon, son of Jonah. And that must have hurt Peter. must have hurt him deeply. 
You say, well, why does it hurt him? Because his name isn't Simon any longer. Remember three, three and a half years earlier in this same location, Sea of Galilee, same disciples, seven of them, same Lord Jesus Christ. And Andrew brings his brother Simon, Peter, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings Simon. And Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And then it says this in John 1.42, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas or Peter, which means a stone. What does the word Simon mean? It means a vacillating one. You know, you're shifty. You can't be count on. But Cephas, Peter, means a stone, a rock. And it speaks of a strong foundation. Peter's name was changed by Jesus three and a half years ago, but the problem now is Peter is acting like the old Simon, which is what we do when we sin against the Lord. Peter had fallen so far that the Lord is using his old name because he's acting like his old self. Then the three, third thing is the series of questions and you get the idea here. You've been around long enough to know that the fact that Peter's love for the Lord was asked three times by the Lord was not by accident. Because Peter denied the Lord publicly three times. Now if he is to have a public ministry, he must confess his love for Christ publicly three times in order to be restored to his leadership. If a man is going to shepherd, if a woman is going to shepherd the flock of God, the people of God, the lambs of God, there's a lot of different character traits that you should possess, but none of these is more important than your constraining love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The supreme devotion of a disciple is centered on Christ. Let's move to the third point. It's the probing challenge of a supreme devotion. The probing challenge of a supreme devotion. Because now the Lord really zeroes in on the heart. And he asks some pretty tough questions of Peter that he asks of you and me this morning. And it has to do with, is my supreme devotion centered on Christ or not? That's the question. The first question, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, did you notice here there are two kinds of love that he's talking about here? He talks first about a preeminent kind of love that you may not catch right off the bat, and understandably so. And then the other one is a priority kind of love. The preeminent kind of love is shown in the Greek word, and some of you have heard it if you've been in church for a while, is the Greek verb agapao, or in its noun form, it's agape. Some churches call themselves the agape fellowship. They want to be known by, by their love. And so the word that Jesus is using here is he's asking him, do you love me with that kind of love? But then notice what he says. At the end he says, do you, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And then he adds, more than these. Well, more than what? These has to refer to something. 
Well, for, they've wrestled with that for 2,000 years, and no one knows for certain. I think there are two of the strongest possibilities are, number one, when Jesus is there. Remember, when Peter went back to fishing the week before, which we saw last Sunday morning, it wasn't just going out for a time of relaxation. He was going back to his old way of life, his old business. He cleaned off the boat, he got the fishing nets out, and he says, I'm going fishing. I think Peter was so disillusioned, disappointed, even with himself, that he's thinking, I can't make it as a, as a leader of disciples. I'm just going to go back to the fishing business. So Jesus says, Peter, these nets, this boat, Sea of Galilee, do you love me more than you love the fishing business. Remember what I said to you three and a half years ago, Peter? Follow me. Your vocation's going to change. I'm going to make you to become a fisher of men. It's going to change. The second idea is maybe what Jesus was saying, do you love me more than these, is a few days ago, Peter, remember? In that upper room, you said you loved me more than all the other disciples loved me. Do you still claim that? Do you really think you still now love me more than John does or more than Philip does or more than Andrew does? And so we're not sure of what it is. But what we do know is the key is a, is a God wants us to have that preeminent kind of love for him and that puts him first place, which is the priority. John Calvin said this, No man will steadily persevere in the discharge of his ministry unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart. Peter replies to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Ah, but wait a minute. We see that in the English text, but if you were reading the Greek text, you wouldn't see that. Stay with me. It's not by accident. Jesus says, do you agapao me? Peter now changes the word. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I, English says love, it's not that word. You, Lord, you know I like you. Dr. James Boyce was the, pres uh, the, the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for years before he went to heaven. He was a great scholar and totally one of the leaders of the councils on biblical inerrancy years ago. He suggests that agapao is a 100% kind of commitment love, while phileo is a 60% kind of commitment love. So when Jesus says, do you love me, do you have a 100% commitment to me? Peter says, Lord, you know I've got a 60% commitment. Let's put it in the English. Lord says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I like you. Do you get the idea? This is what's happening here. He dared not claim agapao because it was too recently he denied the Lord. But he did claim to like the Lord. 60%. And more than these talks about the other matters as well. So Peter responds to the Lord's questions. And you'll notice each time what he appeals to. He's a broken man. He's not the arrogant Peter. He's got a spirit of humility. And he says, Lord, you know all things. He says it three times. In other words, I don't even know my own. You know, Jeremiah supports that. I don't know my own heart neither. The heart is deceitful above all things. What's he ask? And who can know it? We don't even know our own heart. We're so deceptive. So Peter says, I appeal to you. You know all things, Lord. 
I appeal to that. Does omniscience scare you or bless your heart? Does the fact that Jesus knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, every act you've ever, every word you've ever spoken, Jesus knows everything about you, does that scare you? I hope it doesn't. Unless you don't know Christ and have been forgiven, then I hope it does. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's where we come to Christ and we're forgiven. And how wonderful to know that he loves me with this insatiable love, even though he knows the worst about me. So I'm pretty happy to say, Lord, uh, nothing I can do about it anyway, but I'm glad that you know all about me and still love me. But I'm also glad that you know the things I desperately want you to know about me, but sometimes I guess I just don't show it or say it, do I? I think Jesus could see down in Peter's heart there was that kernel of the love for Christ that was there. Second question is basically the same, although the Lord drops the comparison. He says, do I'm second time, Simon, Simon, Jonah, do you love me? He said, I'm yea, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Again, he asked Peter, Simon, do you agopao me? He says, I phileo you. Now let's go to the third question, verse 17. Peter denied the Lord three times publicly, so now he has to affirm his love three times. And in verse 17, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter was grieved. Why was he grieved? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, well, the threefold denial. Now it goes deeper. Stay with me. Jesus changes the word now. Peter, do you agapao me? Peter says, I phileo you. Second time. Peter, do you agapao me? He says, I've got about a 60% kind of commitment. I like you, Lord. Third time, Jesus changes his word and uses the same as Peter. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter was grieved. Why? Suppose you have a spouse, somebody you love dearly. But sometimes you're not sure it's reciprocal. You say, do you love me? And your spouse says, I like you. You ask again, do you love me? I like you. Hun, do you even like me? Can you, can you imagine how cutting that is? Pierces down the heart. Love me, I like you. Love me, I like you. Do you even like me, Peter? Peter was grieved. He says, Lord, what great words. You know everything. Can't conceal anything any longer. Can't hide anything. You know everything. And deep in my heart, you know I phileo you. I like you. You see what he did? He put Peter's phileo love up for suspect. It was at least something that needed to be questioned. And Jesus comes to us with the same questions. Do you love me? 
And maybe to some of you, maybe he might be asking, do you even like me? Maybe. Let's close it out with a passionate commissioning to shepherding delight. The passion, we've been to the private conversation, the public confrontation, the passionate commissioning to the shepherding delight. With a less than perfect and mature love, the Lord accepts Peter and commissions Peter to be a leader of the disciples and to shepherd his flock. Verse 15, Peter, feed my lambs. Those are the little children. 16, Peter, tend my sheep. Pastor the sheep. Verse 17, Peter, feed my sheep. So what you see here, the basic requirements for being a shepherd are feeding and caring for my lambs and my sheep. I want to call your attention to that first personal pronoun that is used here. My lambs, my sheep, my dear sheep. It's important. If you have any kind of shepherding ministry, and I hope you do, if you're an official elder, pastor, a leader, a shepherd, he's reminding us, they're not your sheep, they're my sheep. I was preparing this message, been on it for three months, and I still remember 56 years ago, I was just a brand new Christian, didn't know anything about the Bible. When I say nothing, I mean nothing. And I went to Emanuel Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, and Dr. Richard Sumi was the senior pastor. He later was Dallas Seminary chaplain before he died and went to heaven. I didn't learn a whole lot by what he said because I wasn't there long enough to take it on in. But I just remember the thing that caught me was his absolute reverence for God. I mean, there was a, there was a holy reverence that, I, that, that came to my heart that I've never forgotten. And his high view of Scripture... But I remember the one message, probably was this text, though I'm not sure. I can remember he had a deep baritone voice. He was about six foot four, slender, and he'd walk back and forth on that platform. And he'd say, remember, they're my sheep. They don't belong to you. They're my little lambs. They're not yours. They're my dear sheep. I say to every one of you, pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, nursery workers, moms and dads, and anybody involved in anybody's life of shepherding, remember, they're not yours. So watch how you treat them. Treat them with love, tenderness, and care. I'll close with the story I read years ago that came to me more recently. It's a book called Mistreated, entitled Mistreated by Ron Lee Dunn. Goes back quite a few years. But in that book, he talks about two little otter boys when they're just little boys. And he talks about the similarities of their background and then it ends with something else. The one was born in 1892 in Eastern Europe. The other one was born three years later in a little small town 
in Illinois. They lived very separate lives in separate different parts of the world, but they had identical experiences because both boys were what they call altar boys and given the opportunity to assist the parish priest as he would uh, conduct the service of communion. And both boys had a similar experience unbeknownst to each other. They both spilled the cup with the wine in it representing the blood of Christ. And it went on the carpet. And that's when the similarities ended. The little boy that did it over in Eastern Europe, the parish priest went to him. And he smacked him hard right across the face. And he said, you clumsy oaf, leave the altar. And the little boy left humiliated, crying. That little boy grew up to be a communist and an atheist. 1943 became the dictator of Yugoslavia, and he ruled there with an iron hand until 1980 when he died. The other little boy had the same experience, but not the same reaction of the priest. The priest in Illinois came to this little boy, and he got down on one knee so he could just be eyeball to eyeball with him. And he said, you're going to do much better the next time, son. Don't worry about it. He says, you know, someday I think you just might be a wonderful priest for God. And that little boy grew up to be the beloved Bishop Fulton Sheen. And as I thought on this story, I remember it's been almost 70 years ago. But I can remember as a little boy watching Bishop Fulton Sheen with my dad on a black and white little TV in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And as a little boy, I just remember listening to him from time to time and thinking, he seems like such a kind man. I don't know a whole lot more about him. They call him the first TV evangelist, by the way. But what a difference. Too bad the priest over in Eastern Europe didn't remember those words, feed my lambs, and remember they're mine. Treat them tenderly and lovingly. So we close by saying what? Let's get at the sheep business. Take the hook, be a fisher of men, be an evangelist. Take the crook, be a shepherd. Bring the two together and you've got the great commission. And the one basic qualification for shepherding the flock, which Jesus points out, is a supreme devotion for Christ. Do you want to be a growing disciple? I don't think you'd be here if you didn't. Your dependence must be cast upon Christ. Your devotion must be centered on Christ. Lord willing, next week, your destiny is controlled by Christ. Jesus asks us, do you love me? Love is the power of obedience, the power of duty, the power of service, sacrifice, worship, fellowship. Love is paramount. Now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Would you bow with me in prayer? I'm not going to take time here, but I just need to make one little 
comment, and that's this. If you've never been born again of the Spirit of God and know Christ as Savior, it is impossible for you to implement these principles into your life. A man is never saved by his love for God. A man is never saved by his love for Christ. He is saved only by his faith in the Lord Jesus. But if you know him, then he calls you to a life whereby the love of Christ compels you and constrains you. Thank you, our Father, for such a glorious, wonderful Savior and Shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.